This morning we're going to be talking a little bit about perspectives. Your perspective on something makes a huge impact of what you see, of what's important, doesn't it? What stands out to you. You have a different perspective on the same event or the same object. It can change what you notice about it. Let's just do a quick experiment to show you. Think about your perspective on this room, on this sanctuary, because of how it's designed, how you see. What do you notice about it? Well, your perspective is that you're looking up this way, right? And so you've got this window, which... Um, you know, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And we've got the stone and we've got the, the pipe organs and we have Jill back and we've got, you know, kind of, this is the way this room is designed. Your perspective allows you to notice kind of the beauty, the transcendence, the cross, uh, the communion, the elements. Uh, it's meant, that perspective uh, makes something about this room. We know in, uh, when we met with kind of the architects and the campus plan of how we uh, seek to grow this campus that uh, one of the questions asked is what's kind of the holiest, most sacred spot in this church that we can't touch and this wall was it right this wall was the thing that people said over and over again now I want you to look at my perspective of this room <laughs> by not looking at the front wall but let's just turn around I want you to do this like turn around and look look at the back wall of this same room you have that lovely yellowish color on the <laughs> wall and I saw that I don't have stained glass but it's a, it's a little sliver it's a teeny little sliver and I got great exit signs uh, that are very evident for me to see, and a clock reminding me to try to keep my sermon shorter. Uh, that's, that's my perspective on this room. It's not that it's a bad perspective, it's just a very different perspective. People walk in like, oh, the sanctuary. I'm like, I don't know. It's like, like there's nobody here that was sitting there going, you know, you know what we can do? What would be a great idea is to like turn all the chairs every week and let's all look that way. For, for, for every Sunday because, you know, there's like space up here and we don't need all this space and we're out of room and so let's just like have the chairs come back and then that's the way we should look. Nobody is, don't, please, no emails. No one is suggesting that. This room is designed for a certain perspective. But it's not that my perspective's wrong. I am seeing the same room from a different perspective and you notice different things. You see different things. Perspective makes an enormous difference. We're in the second week of a three-week series uh, entitled Unlocking Joy. And this series is uh, the same title as our uh, capital campaign of Unlocking Joy. And we are looking at the opening verses in these three weeks of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And this letter is written from a certain perspective. Paul is looking at things and writing from a very definite perspective of life and faith that is particular to this letter. What do I mean by that? First off, Paul uh, is, this is the last of the letters of the New Testament. Ephesians, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, the ones we know in the New Testament were written by Paul, all came before this one. This is the last letter that we have that's known by Paul. And that perspective of, 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 of his years is important. What we also know about his perspective is that he's in prison. That changes your perspective on life and what's important when you are writing from prison. He's in prison for his proclamation of the gospel. And the last thing that we know is that Paul is writing the perspective of knowing that he is in prison and awaiting trial in Rome where he will almost certainly die for his faith. It's really important we realize this about the letter to the Philippians. Anytime we read it, the perspective that Paul is writing from is no one is someone who knows that they are at the end of their earthly journey. Changes 
things, doesn't it? Have you ever had conversations with someone that knew that they were at the end of their earthly journey and those conversations are maybe very different in tone than the ones you had had before? Knowing that your time is coming to an end, it changes. You have a different perspective of what you want to talk about, of what's important. As many of you know, my father passed away just over five years ago. The last two weeks of his life, when he was no longer uh, seeking any kind of treatment for the lung disease that took his life, um, I got to spend time with him. And we had a, a number of conversations, one of which went way past midnight, where he's on oxygen and just the two of us are talking. There was an honesty and an openness to my father in those conversations for which I am always grateful. I'd always gotten along with my dad. But the, we had this, it was a di- he had a different perspective of what he wanted to talk about in those moments. And I'm so grateful for those conversations. I, my only regret was that we hadn't had more like it before that. But what changed was his perspective of knowing his time was coming to a close. There was an urgency to the conversation. Does that make sense? Paul is writing from that perspective. That is different from any other perspective he's written from in the New Testament. And I want you to keep that perspective in mind as we continue in looking at these opening verses of Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8 today. Last week we looked at 1 and 2. We focused on this word saint. Um, the forgiveness of sins, the, the grace of God, the only unique thing the church has to offer to the world. What we talked about is how everything else that, that the church does in the world, pretty much somebody else can do. That idea of sainthood, of grace, of forgiveness um, is what makes us unique. This is what spills out from sainthood. This is what Paul writes. I thank my God for every remembrance of you, Always in every one of my prayers for all of you, praying with joy for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. For all of you are my partners in God's grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I long for all of you with the tender affection of Christ Jesus. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are, how we walk in here today, we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this perspective that Paul's writing from is so important because the tone of his letter is different. Now, one of the things that we know about the Apostle Paul is that whatever kind of thing went into the formation of church culture in this country, Paul sort of missed, right? The formation of church culture in many ways in America is a place where um, we, we know we're not supposed to have conflict openly. We're not supposed to have disagreement. We're always smiling. We're always nice, always agreeing, always get along, right? Um, uh, and, and then we, we talk about each other behind each other's backs. But, like, but what we do when we're together is, is we're polite. We don't, we don't have disagreement. Paul didn't get that memo. Paul, from the beginning, is like, he is opinionated. He is honest. Uh, and, and his honesty comes through in, in his ministry and in his letters. Take, for example, the different tone here from the perspective that he writes when he writes to the church in Galatia. Right? In the book of Galatians, if you read that, the book of Galatians could not 
tonally be more different from Philippians. Because Paul is like a pressure cooker, if you read it. It's like he is so mad at the Galatian church. He is so frustrated with them. He does not hold back. And you read the opening chapters, it's like a pressure cooker getting more and more angry until he finally explodes. He's like, you foolish Galatians! Which is like the churchiest translation that they could give to what he says. Because they were looking at it like, oh, you can't say that in church. So just say foolish and then put an exclamation point on it so that we know he really, really means it. This, this letter is written from a totally different perspective. It's like a love letter, isn't it? I mean, he's talking about the tender affection he feels. He says, oh, I yearn for you. My love pours out from you. It's just somebody who is just this raw honesty of wanting these folks to know of his love and his feelings for them. Psychologists tell us is that when, when people know that they're writing or, or speaking to someone at the end of their earthly life, there's often regrets that come along that they want to, to, to make up for. Some of those regrets are about people. They're about relationships. One of the most common is that they wish that they had spent more time focused on the people in their lives, their family and their friends, than being so busy and stressed out and worked and working all the time. There's a, there's a regret in that, and that what goes right along with it is that there's this regret that I didn't have the courage to be more open in my feelings, more affectionate in my feelings with those whom I love. I don't know if Paul lived with those kind of regrets, but you can see the perspective as he knows he's at the end of his journey, just this raw, I need you to know how much I feel for you, how loved you are. It, it reminds me in a sense of, if you remember on September 11th, when it started realizing that planes were being flown into different structures and the horror and the tragedy of that day, when people on the planes began learning that if they were in a hijacked plane, that there was a very good chance that they were at the very end of their earthly journey. Well, you, over and over again, they were finding ways to share phones or to pick up phones, to call people whom they loved, often not getting them, uh, but leaving messages for them or relaying to an operator saying, please tell the people in my life that I love them. I mean, these are just heartfelt messages of what I need you to know is how much you mean to me, how loved you are. Don't ever forget that. It's a different perspective of what's important when you know you're at the end of your journey. And Paul's writing from this perspective to the church in Philippi. Now, since we're talking about Philippians, I want to take a second, as we sit with all of this, to just talk a little bit about who this church is that Paul's writing to, because the Philippian church was a really unique one in the, in the New Testament, okay? So I just wanted to have a sense of who's this church that he's talking about this way? Uh, who, who does he have this sort of burning affection for? What is it about them? And so we're going to have a, a, some things that are going to come up on the screen just to set some, some context here. Uh, the first thing is that Almost everything we know about the Philippian church outside of the book of Philippians comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16. And what's important about this, and I want you to keep this in mind, is that Paul, from uh, when he became a Christian until this moment, uh, his ministry has kind of been in one narrow little strip of the world. Paul was from the village of Tarsus which is in modern-day Turkey. He was Turkish uh, in, in his origins, how we would think of him. Uh, and then he was trained as a Pharisee. We know he was in Jerusalem at the time and right after the time of Jesus. So if you think about on a map, that sort of area of the Mediterranean, of Turkey down to Jerusalem, that was the world Paul knew. And then he became a Christian on the road to Damascus, again, in that little strip of land. And so Paul, in his early missionary journeys, that's where he hung out. 
That's where he did missionary work. That's where he was an evangelist, was going to those regions of the world because he knew the culture. He knew how it worked. He kind of knew the ethos of the place, right? He was a good translator of the gospel to those places. So Ephesus and all of these other places that we know of, they're in Turkey, right? What happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 16 is that Paul is in that same spot doing his work, and then a vision from God calls to go to Macedonia, which is a word that we kind of know of a little bit, but we don't use it much. Macedonia is in modern-day Greece. This is the first time that we know of that the gospel of Jesus Christ moves to a new continent, which is historic, significant. And if you have traveled around the world, and if you've been to Turkey and you've been to Greece, you know that they're separated by a very small geographic area, but these are two totally different cultures, still to this day, and certainly true at that time. So even though when Paul was, Paul was called to Macedonia, he was just going a little bit further west, he was going into Greece, and it was a different culture, it was a different cultural worldview, it was a different kind of sense of faith, uh, different kind of dynamics, and he is going to have to, he is a fish out of water now. And he's got to find a whole different way to translate the gospel in Macedonia. This is a huge moment in history, Acts 16. And the first city we know he goes to is the city of Philippi. city of Philippi, he's writing to here, is in modern-day Greece. First place we know that the gospel traveled in the, what we would consider today Europe. All right, number two. What we read in Acts 16 is the first convert is Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. It says that that is the first, what we would think of again, kind of European uh, convert to Christianity that we know of. Again, it's historic, and the first person is a woman. I think on Mother's Day it's important for us to, to see and to recognize that. And the author of Acts wants us to understand that Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth. That is how she's described at the beginning. Now that might not, might not mean much to us. But purple cloth at the time, and what the readers of Acts would have known, is that this was one of the most precious commodities that existed. Lydia was a powerful businesswoman. Most people who traded in purple cloth at that time were men. It was highly unusual for uh, a woman to be uh, working in that way with that kind of precious commodity. Lydia was a powerful, successful businesswoman. That's what it means to say she's a dealer in purple cloth. And not only that, but number three, Lydia is the head of her household. That's really significant. Because uh, what it says is in Acts 16 is when Lydia comes to faith, she's a dealer in purple cloth, but it says that she and her household were then baptized. Again, this is really important to understand who Paul's writing to. The way that uh, kind of Roman society worked at the time is it was very hierarchical. Okay? And so in every household, there was a head of the household, almost always a man. And uh, the people in that household, a wife, wives, uh, children, grandchildren, uh, servants, slaves, all of them were seen as kind of the property almost of the head of the household. I'm not advocating for this system. I want everybody to be clear. On Mother's Day, I am not saying let's do that again, right? I'm just telling you it's how it worked at the time. And... When the head of the household made a decision, everybody in the household had the decision made for them. It was not just a decision for the individual, but the household had that decision made. So we see that, and most of the time it's men, that when a head of a household became a Christian, for example, their whole house became Christian. Did they believe? We don't really know. Didn't matter. The head of the household did. And so the household became Christian. It's just how it worked. 
This is why it was so significant in the fourth century when the Emperor Constantine became a Christian. Because if you think about the whole huge Roman Empire at that time, when the head of the household, and the household is an empire, became a Christian, overnight, everyone in the empire is a Christian. Well, I don't even know what this really religion's about. Doesn't matter, you're a Christian. Like, it, it, you, we have to appreciate, and that's not really the point of today, but this enormous worldview change that the church had to go through from an outlawed religion to like, everybody knows a Christian. I don't even know the stories of the Bible. Doesn't matter, you're a Christian. Lydia is unique in that she's a dealer in purple cloth. She's a successful businesswoman. She is also, by getting baptized, and it says her household is baptized, she is the head of her household. It's amazing the first person in Macedonia that God changes their heart and says you. It's not often the stereotype we're given, is it? And last, the church begins in her house. We read in the last chapter, uh, last verse of Acts 16 that when Paul and Silas escape prison, they gather with the other believers who have started gathering on a regular basis in Lydia's home. When Paul is writing his letter from prison to the Christians in Philippi, he's sending the letter to Lydia's house. On Mother's Day, it's important to remember the women who have shaped and formed the church. I love, as the father of two daughters, who would describe Lydia probably as a girl boss. That's who God changes their heart first and says, you. The church in Europe will start with you. Defying a whole lot of social norms. This is who Paul is yearning for. He's thinking about Lydia. He's thinking about her household. He's thinking about the other men and women who are in that home who are saints of the church. That's who he's writing this letter to. And he's saying, my perspective at the end is, is that church isn't a theological concept. It's not about doctrine or dogma in the end. It's about you. It's about our connection. It's about our relationship. I think one of the most glorious things that we can embody is what it means to be a web of relationship like this, where Paul wasn't in his prison like an influencer might be today, like taking a selfie going, hey, hard times, but you know, I'm kind of keeping positive here in my prison cell and like kind of send me good energy and everything else. He's going like, no, I, want, I'm not, I don't want you to think about my brand. I'm focused on you. I want you to know how important you are to me. I want you to know how my love flows to you. This is raw honesty that is captivating then and it is captivating in our world today. So we talked about last week in this capital campaign, the reason we're doing this is not because we just want to. Uh, I don't know anybody who sits there and is like, ah, I'd like to let's like try to raise over $6 million. That'd be fun. Uh, just, I don't have anything else to do. Let's go, let's go do that. Nobody does that. Well, I don't know if anybody does it, but they shouldn't do it if they, if they didn't. That's not why we're doing this. We're not doing this because we just kind of want to do some work on campus. We're doing this because we are maxed out. Children, youth, and we have a space that we can renovate and change to become the heartbeat of this campus again. And we need the space. But as we talked about last week, part of what's unique about our growth in recent years, and, and we, it, not, in a, not in a haughty sense, but in, a, in an honest sense, we have to see is that in this growth, over 70% of our growth 
over the last nine years has been among people who were not part of a church before coming here, which is hugely significant in a city like Austin. There's a difference in kingdom growth and church swapping. And something that's happening here is making inroads into the majority Austin community. And I think it's because we have a certain perspective we're bringing. Like, think about the city. We love the city. It's an amazing place to live. But what's the dynamics of the city? It's people who are moving here in many ways. It's tech industry. It's people who are hard charging. It's people who have studied. It's people who are ambitious. It's people whose careers are making life decisions for them. And I want you to hear, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad with that. We are a church full of a lot of people who are doing a lot of things in their life and have done a lot of things in their life and with their careers, and that is a wondrous thing. But our perspective that's unique in this city is to say that we follow a God who says that fulfillment is ultimately not out of what we do, but in who we're connected with. That Jesus says that you wanna know what the most important thing to do is, is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're not doing that, you're missing the whole point of why you're here. Doesn't matter what lifetime achievement awards you got, doesn't matter where your kids got into college, doesn't matter if you're in the who's who of whatever that nobody else is reading about, you are missing the point of why you exist. And that there will always be a piece of you that is hungering for something more. We are meant for connection. We are meant for relationship. Last week we talked about the uniqueness of our understanding of our relationship with God. But what we see Paul writing about here is he's going, don't forget that what matters most is I want you to know how loved you are. I am convinced that one of the things that is happening at this church is that we have a discipleship program that is not built around content, primarily. It's not built, what is wrong with the world today is it's not that there's not enough content. Oh, if we just had another lecture, then everybody would have it figured out. That's not what's missing in the world today. The internet has all content at all times available for everybody. What is tearing the fabric of our society apart is that we are becoming increasingly individualized, increasingly lonely, increasingly suspicious of anybody, and increasingly intolerant of anybody that sees anything different from me, from my view and my way of being, and nobody's going to tell me what to think. And the perspective we bring to this city is saying, no, no. It's not about you. It's about you not as an island. It's in you being finding a connection to something bigger than yourself. That's what we're bringing to the table. That's what Paul is reminding the Philippian church of what matters most to him. One of the most wondrous things that I heard recently was that someone in our discipleship department was saying that less and less of our small groups are using book studies. Now, if you're in a small group using a book study and it's working for you, I'm not shaming you. Genuinely, keep doing it. But man, if you're in a small group, which more and more folks are, and if you're not, you're going to have a chance to join one in the, the days ahead. Or you're in a Bible study where people are praying for each other. If you get together every like two or three weeks and people go, what's going on in your life? And then you have like three other people. That's a whole night if you're telling the truth. You don't need to be sitting there going, what do you think of the quote on page 61? It's like, no, like, here's what's going on in my life. Here's what's going on. Like, here's how you can pray for me. Here's what's going on in my marriage. Here's what's going on, you know, thing. And if, and if all we do is gather and sit there and go, well, Thomas, you know, how can we pray for you? Well, Miriam's going to college. She can pray for me in that. That means nothing. That, is, that, is, that means nothing. 
But we are finding pockets of community where people aren't just part of a crowd, they're part of a web of relationships that matter. And as we continue to get bigger, we need to also continue to get smaller. So that every person in this church has other folks that they can look at and go, I yearn to be with you. And have others who express that to them. And in a culture of loneliness, if we keep doing that, it will be like offering people a drink of water if they've been traveling through the the desert. I'll end with this. Your perspective on this room is right, by the way. This is the better wall. We're never going to turn you around and go, man, that wall, that's the perspective you need. No one was sitting there going like, you know what will get me closer to Jesus? More exit signs. That would actually just really bring me closer into the presence of Jesus. But my perspective was better than yours a few weeks ago. Because at our 11 o'clock service, uh, the one that takes place after this, um, at our contemporary service, we often try to find interactive, creative ways of people to pray or to do stuff. And so there's a lot of movement in the room and different voices. And it's just, it's a different, it's a different service. Um, and this one day, uh, a number of weeks ago, the room was as it is. It was very full. And, um, and we did prayer requests. Now, the way we do prayer requests at 11, if you've been there, is we'll invite people to pray. And we'll ask someone, they'll put their hand up in the air and they said, here's how you can pray. And then after someone prays, we'll ask for a volunteer. We'll say, if nobody, we hope people are going to pray for you this week, but if nobody else is, this person's volunteering saying, I will pray for them. Okay, so every prayer request has a volunteer. So if I offered a prayer request, for instance, Mike might be sitting there and go, I'll pray for Thomas this week, right? So every prayer request has a second person. Now, in these times, what you're sometimes hoping for is that we're going to move beyond the, will you pray for my neighbor or pray for my aunt, and we're happy to pray for your aunt and your neighbor. That's important, genuinely. But there's always a different moment when someone says, here's how you can pray for me in a room full of people. you, You can feel the gear shift in the room when that happens. And this individual stood up and said, gave their name, and they're newer here. And they asked for prayers. And it was a prayer that was raw and honest and unvarnished. And you could feel the room shift with that level of honesty. Now, I was sitting in the front row. I was sitting where you were. My perspective was looking forward. And they asked for then a volunteer for that prayer. And someone volunteered. I didn't know who it was. I was looking forward. But when the prayer request time ended, I stood up to have my perspective, looking out to do the final benediction, which we'll do here in just a few minutes. And as I was getting ready to do my benediction, usually that's a moment where you know, people's perspective is they're looking forward. The room's still, usually. It's a precious moment. But as I stepped to the benediction, there was a person speed walking, like arms pumping from this side of the room all the way around the back to the other, and that's normally not a good sign. <laughs> so when the service ended, I made sure to go up and find him and just say, hey, was everything okay? And they said, yeah. I said, what, what, were you, what were you doing? This. I was the volunteer who was praying for that individual that stood up, that was new, who offered prayers. And I didn't want her to leave the room before I thanked her 
for her honesty and vulnerability. I wanted her to know what an honor it was to pray for her this week. I wanted to give her a hug and give her my contact information so if she needed anything this week, she knew she could reach out. And I didn't want her to leave in this crowd without getting to her. Music was glorious that day. The sermon, I don't think it put anybody to sleep. That was the best thing that happened. That's church. That's how you unlock joy in the city of Austin, and nobody else can bring that perspective of what truly matters than us. Amen? Let's pray. We do ask, Lord, for your leading and guiding this day, this week, and as we look to tomorrow. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.